Well, happy Valentine's Day. And if you're here this morning and you don't have a Valentine, just know that the Lord loves you more than you could ever imagine. And the Lord is your Valentine this morning. Psalm number 50 in the Word of God. Psalm number 50, please. You know, I don't always get to make the connections that I would like to make from the various and to the various psalms. So one connection from one psalm to another connection to another psalm, I don't always get to explore that like I would like to. But the connection between Psalm number 49 and Psalm number 50 is rather striking. Remember, <clears throat> Psalm 49 is that great psalm where the writer reminds us that riches and wealth cannot redeem human beings from death or Sheol. And uh, the people of God, most of us that don't really have a whole lot of money or maybe we're not wealthy like the people that are identified in the 49th Psalm, we can say a hearty amen to that. And I also think that as many of the Psalms do, they have a keen eye toward not just wealthy people, but wealthy people who are sort of like the elites that rule the ruling class specifically, you remember that uh, many of the Psalms were written by David or David's offspring or David's cohorts. And these men, uh, one of the sort of underappreciated elements of David was that he was a politician. David was a divine statesman, as we would say. There's a big difference between a politician and a divine statesman. Daniel also was a divine statesman. Solomon, David's son, was also a divine statesman. And in some ways, Paul, the apostle, represented Christ before governors and kings. And so he was also a bit of a statesman himself. And the Lord has blessed his church and his people with people or leaders that have had a keen eye on the way in which nations are run through political means. But you come out of Psalm 49 and you're reminded that in Psalm 49, God specifically connects the redemption language, all the redemption language that you saw in the 49th Psalm would remind a Jewish reader, a Hebrew under the old covenant, they would have sort of been transported back to really what is the sort of locus classicus the full mention of redemption in the Old Testament would be Exodus chapters 12 and 13. And that is the Passover where the Jewish people are in Egyptian bondage, you remember. And the last of the plagues that God sends to smite the Egyptians, the sort of straw that broke the camel's back that finally let uh, and compelled Pharaoh to let the Hebrew people go, was the slaying of the firstborn of Egypt. And you remember where God commanded the people to uh, make an offering 
a lamb, a spotless lamb, and the blood was to be spread on the three sides of the doorpost over the Hebrews' house there. And the death angel that came through, when that death angel saw the blood, he passed that home and the Egyptians, who were obviously unbelievers, uh, they would not have had blood on their doorpost. And so the firstborn of Egypt, all of them, the Bible says, was stricken by a terrible uh, plague in the form of a death angel that came to execute God's justice and judgment against the Egyptian people. And so this is a very important theme. And uh, the idea, as you come out of Psalm 49, that we reinforced was that redemption is not purchased through wealth or riches. Redemption is purchased by blood. And this is one of the great themes of the Bible. And you remember in the book of Leviticus, one of the theme statements that Moses makes is that there is life in the blood. Well, what a statement that is. There is life in the blood. The very thing that if you take it away from you, you die. Uh, Moses says that there is life in the blood. And so you have this concept, this theme of redemption by blood that's sort of brought to the foray in Psalm number 49. But just as we would read Psalm 49 and say a hearty amen, and then we would hope that we were all bringing the right offering and the right sacrifice to God, what begins to happen to us inadvertently in our Christian lives is that we begin to have the mistaken impression. We make a big mistake in our thinking. And the mistake is, is that we begin to think that by just merely bringing the right offering and the sacrifice, just like the Jewish people did when they were under the Old Covenant, um, you know, you come out of Psalm 49 and redemption is not by wealth, but it's by blood. But then you come into Psalm 50 and you have the Jewish people making blood sacrifices and offerings and God has a very specific word to them. And so what happened to the Jewish people is something called formalism, ritualism. Let me explain this for just a moment. Formalism occurs when we begin to focus too much on the external ritual of what it means to be the people of God when we sort of focus and have a misfocus on the externals, all the things that we do that are, are designed to sort of draw our heart out in worship to God, what happened to the Jewish people under the Old Covenant is they actually begin to think that all God wanted was them to just bring their offering and for them to offer their offering and then just sort of go about their merry way. And Psalm 50 is a very, very powerful reminder that God is not interested in our mere ritual. God is not interested in mere formal, the formalities of worship. And God was not pleased with his people under the old covenant um, just because they brought the right sacrifice and offering. And so we're going to talk about that this morning. We're going to talk about what that means. 
Because what happens is, is we may get the mistaken impression that by merely bringing one sacrifice and going through the motions of making an offering to God, that that would have been enough to save someone from God's impending judgment. Okay, so we're going to sort of unpack this. What is formalism and how does that apply to us today? Psalm 50 is here to show us that the true God is not interested in mere external formalisms and rituals, traditions, and that God is certainly not satisfied with hypocrisy from those who claim to be his people. I always like to try to give people a New Testament passage that helps to maybe enter in more deeply to whatever you're studying there in the Old Testament because generally people are more familiar with the New Testament than they are the Old. And you sort of, if you're not careful when you're studying the Old Testament, you can get turned around pretty quickly uh, because there's a lot of concepts that are pretty foreign to us. The New Testament helps to sort of ground us and bring a certain clarity to what God had been saying all along in the Old Testament. When I was in seminary, I come to realize uh, my second or third year in that basically when you study the Bible as a whole, the New Testament is really just a commentary on the Old Testament. There's so much of the Old Testament that is alluded to and, and talked about in the New Testament. I don't know that you can go one chapter in the New Testament without there being a reference to something uh, in the Old. And it's very important. But I want to give you this verse that illustrates the truth of Psalm 50. It's actually 1 Peter chapter 4 and verse 17. I'll quote it for you. You can write it down and look at it there later on. Peter said, For it is time for judgment to begin with the family of God. And if it begins with us, what will the outcome be for those who do not obey the gospel of God? Let's read that again. For it is time for judgment to begin with the family of God. And if it begins with us, what will the outcome be for those who do not obey the gospel of God? Psalm 50 reveals God as the righteous judge. And may we come to soberly reflect upon him and his perfect judgments. Psalm 50 reveals God as the righteous judge. And may we come to sober, soberly reflect upon him and his perfect judgments. I have three simple points. Roman numeral number one is the summons to judgment. Verses one through six, the summons to judgment. Roman numeral number two is the judge's first indictment. The judge's first indictment. Roman numeral number two the judge's first indictment, verses 7 through 15. Roman numeral number 3, the judge's second indictment, verses 16 through 21. So you have verses 1 through 6 as the summons to judgment. Verses 7... Through 15 is the first indictment the righteous judge gives. And then verses 16 through 21 are the judge's second indictment. Got it? All right, let's move on. 
I want you to notice with me who it is speaking in verse number 1 of uh, Psalm 50. I want to read it to you. The mighty one, God the Lord, speaks and summons the earth from the rising of the sun to its setting. These first six verses are reminiscent of another passage that we have for us. Um, this is a sort of those that would have known their Old Testament scriptures when they read Psalm 50 verses 1 through 6, automatically they would have been sort of telegraphed back to something that God has already said in the Pentateuch. And so what the psalmist has in mind is it's reminiscent of Mount Sinai. It's reminiscent of Mount Sinai. I want to read you Exodus chapter 19, verses 16 through 19. Exodus 19, 16 through 19. The Bible says, On the morning of the third day there was thunder and lightning with a thick cloud over the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast. Everyone in the camp trembled. Then Moses led the people out of the camp to meet with God, and they stood at the foot of the mountain. Mount Sinai was covered with smoke because the Lord descended on it in fire. The smoke billowed up from it like smoke from a furnace. The whole mountain trembled violently, and the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder." The first six verses in verse 2, he said, Out of Zion, the perfection of beauty, God shines forth. Our God comes, he does not keep silence. Before him is a devouring fire, around him a mighty tempest. He calls to the heavens above and to the earth that he may judge his people. Gather to me my faithful ones who made a covenant with me by sacrifice. The heavens declare his righteousness, for God himself is judge. Uh, the allusions to the giving of the law and God touching down on the fiery mountain in Exodus 19 are very obvious for those uh, who would have been reading this who were familiar with the scripture. In verse number one, we have three very key names of God being mentioned. I'm reading out of the English Standard Version. It says, the mighty one, God, the Lord. Three key names of God being mentioned. If I was to give you an alternate translation, you could also translate the phrase, the mighty one, God the Lord. You could translate it as the God of gods, the capital G God of the little g, plural, gods. The God of gods, Yahweh. This is a very specific title. These are the very three very key titles. The word El means God. The word Elohim means God. The word Yahweh means Lord. And so in the New International Version, it's translated, the Mighty One, God the Lord. The designation Elohim would have brought the Jewish reader back to the creation event. So it's just not that God is God sort of in the general sense, but God is the creator God. This is the title for God that you have in Genesis chapter 1 and verse 1. It said, in the beginning, God, Elohim, created the heavens and the earth. The second title for God is the title Yahweh, which means the redeemer God. 
So he is the creator God. He's Elohim. He is Yahweh. He is also the redeemer God. This is the designation that God gives to Moses when Moses said in Exodus chapter 3, Tell me, Lord, who shall I say sent me when I go into the nation of Egypt to tell Pharaoh to let your people go? Who should I tell them sent me? And God retorts back and he says, tell them I am that I am have sent you. And it's the covenant name of God, Yahweh. And specifically, this deals with God's ability and God's nature to redeem his people. Then you have this other key phrase or key word for God. It's the word El. And this is the Canaanite designation for God. And so for the tribes and for the people that would have surrounded Israel, um, this would have been a very specific title for God. This would have been the God that would have been viewed at the top of the pantheon of all the gods in the ancient Near East. So literally, it could be translated, the God of gods, Yahweh, the creator God, the one and only true God, the redeemer God, Yahweh Elohim El. All these great titles for God. This is the covenant-keeping God to the nation of Israel. And this is also the covenant-keeping God to the nation of Israel. This is the covenant-keeping God to creation. Did you know that God has a covenant with creation? Did you know that? In Genesis chapter 9, God covens, God covenants with creation that he will no longer destroy it with water. God is the protector of creation. Also, Hosea chapter 2 and verse 18 comes to mind. And so these are very specific titles for God. The psalmist wants us to know who he is. There's no mistaking him. Uh, it's not just any God speaking. It's the creator God. It's the redeemer God. It's the one and only, the highest God. And as a matter of fact, later on in the psalm, the psalmist makes reference to the most high. But I want to now draw your attention to the great quote by Mr. Alexander McLaren. He said, the psalm opens with a majestic heaping together of the divine names, as if a herald were proclaiming the style and titles of a mighty king at the opening of a solemn court. Now, this is sort of the way that this psalm opens up. This is important because all of this imagery, fire, smoke, mountains, tempest, Devouring, this sort of idea is designed to inspire fear and awe and a majestic sort of atmosphere to this great psalm. God is speaking, ladies and gentlemen. Please take an ear to hear. I want you to, I want to see, and I want you to see the universal scope of his judgment. The universal scope of his judgment. The scope of God's judgment is indeed universal. Notice in the first verse. He said, God the Lord speaks and he summons the earth from the rising of the sun to its setting. Then notice with me in verse 4. He calls to the heavens above and to the earth. This is interesting. God summons both realms that are seen and realms that are unseen. The heavens speaks of the realm that we cannot see. The earth speaks of the realm that we can see. 
This is the physical realm and the spiritual realm. God is calling beings, people, who live in both realms to attend his solemn court. And in this solemn court, in this sober court, the judge of all heaven and earth is going to make some very chilling indictments. But I want you to notice also with me that this judgment of the righteous judge, the Bible calls him, this judgment takes a very unexpected twist. We expect God to judge the heathen. We expect God to judge those that are outside of Christ who have rejected the gospel. We expect God to judge those who are guilty of all sorts of uh, sin and degradation. That's normal for God to do that. But what is Psalm 50? Who is God going to judge in this great psalm? Well, I want you to notice with me verses 4 and 5. Calls to the heavens above and to the earth that he may judge who? His people. What is this? Well, we don't know. God judges everybody else. God's not supposed to judge us. Notice with me also verse 5. He said, Gather to me my faithful ones who made a covenant with me by sacrifice. We have a sudden surprise. This is a rather striking twist in the plot of Psalm 50. I thought that in Psalm 49, God was judging the wealthy those who have riches and who trust in their wealth and their riches to redeem them. And so the idea that would have been in the head and in the mind and in the heart of somebody reading Psalm 49 was, well, I've got to have the right offering. I've got to have the right sacrifice then. But what do you do when you bring the right offering and you bring the right sacrifice and God still judges you? Now, this is the occasion of Psalm 50. This is a very powerful passage that we have before us. It's a very solemn passage. It's a very sober passage. It's a very serious piece of scripture. I want to draw your attention to verse number five. He said, gather to me my faithful ones who made a covenant with me by sacrifice. And if there was any doubt in our heart and our mind of who exactly God is going to judge in this passage. I want to read you an excerpt from the New International Commentary on the Old Testament. Quote, In the ancient Near East, the act of making a covenant with someone was a solemn and serious ceremony. We have glimpses of the ceremony in two biblical passages, Genesis 15 and Jeremiah 34, 18 through 20. And there are records of similar covenant ceremonies from the Mari text in the 18th century B.C. and from the Katna text 15th century B.C. In Genesis 15, God commanded Abram to bring a number of animals to an altar, cut them in two, and lay them each half over against the other. Genesis 15 and verse 10. When the sun had gone down, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between the carcasses of the animals, and God said to Abram, 
to your descendants I give this land, from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, Genesis 15, 17 through 18. In Jeremiah 34, the prophet said that the fate of those who do not keep the covenant will be like the calf when they cut it in two and pass between its parts, Jeremiah 34 and verse 18. At Mari, the phrase to kill a donkey was equivalent to make a covenant. A common element in the covenant ceremony was the recitation of words such as, quote, as this beast is cut up, may the gods do to me and more if I do not fulfill the stipulations of this covenant, end quote. This is very interesting. The reading goes on. Thus we surmise that covenant making in the ancient Near East involved the slaughter and placement of animal halves on either side of an altar and a ceremony in which each participant in the covenant walked between the slain carcasses and declared their intent to observe the stipulations of that covenant. If any of the participants violated the stipulations, then they swore they would receive the same fate as as the slain animals. The verb used in the Hebrew Bible to describe covenant making, karat, to cut, is thus appropriate and descriptive. End quote. So to retranslate this fifth verse, gather to me my faithful ones who cut a covenant with me by sacrifice. Literally, they would take the animal that was for the offering, they would cut the animal in half, they would lay the animal on both sides, they would walk through these slain carcasses of the animal. On the other side, they would say, may God do to me as these animals have been done if I do not keep my end of the promise. And this occurs... In not just one passage in the Bible, but two passages. And it's alluded to and referred to right here in Psalm 50 and verse 5. Now, I want to show you what the Hebrew language is doing in this passage. Remember, to cut a covenant would mean to cut the animals in half and walk between them and recite a vow on the other side. But notice what the psalmist says in verse 22. Mark this then, you who forget God, lest I tear you apart and there be none to deliver. See, here you have in the 22nd verse, God saying, if you guys don't keep your end of the covenant that you have made, if you don't live up to your vows, if you renege on your word, he said, just like you have split those animals in half, I'm going to split you in half. That's what God said. That's not what I say. That's what God says. I don't know about you, but this is not quite what I was looking forward to hearing on Valentine's Day. But in some ways, it's the perfect Valentine's Day message. Because now God, beginning in verse number 7 of Psalm 50, He's going to bring an indictment against His own people. And just in case we were wondering, are you sure, Pastor Joel, if it's, if it's his people? Absolutely, because there's only one covenant people in the Old Testament, and that's the nation of Israel. There's only one people that would have made and cut a covenant with God, 
and offered animals to the name of Yahweh Elohim. You get it? And that's the nation of Israel. Now, what is this first indictment that the great and powerful and righteous judge of all the earth, what's he going to bring? What's this indictment that the righteous and perfect judge is going to bring against his own people? It's the indictment of formalism. Let's read in verse 7 through 15. He said, Hear, O my people, and I will speak, O Israel. I will testify against you. I am God, your God. Not for your sacrifices do I rebuke you. Your burnt offerings are continually before me. I will not accept a bull from your house or goats from your folds. For every beast of the forest is mine, the cattle on a thousand hills. I know all the birds of the hills and all all that moves in the field is mine. If I were hungry, I would not tell you, for the world and its fullness are mine. Do I eat the flesh of bulls or drink the blood of goats? Offer to God a sacrifice of thanksgiving and perform your vows to the Most High. And call upon me in the day of trouble. I will deliver you and you shall glorify me. But to the wicked God said, what right have you to recite my statutes or take my covenant on your lips? The great Bible commentator on the book of Psalms, Mr. Derek Kidner said, that these verses, verses 7 through 15, refer to what he calls the mechanically pious. The mechanically pious. What does he mean? God rebukes them. God rebukes his own people for allowing themselves to lose sight of the true meaning of the sacrifices and offerings of the Old Testament. They had lost touch. They actually began to think that by somehow bringing offerings and cutting covenants and making vows and doing all the, going through all this formalistic ritual, doing all the right stuff outwardly, they actually made the dire and the deadly mistake of thinking that somehow their formalistic external rituals are what made God happy. And what God says, the indictment that God brings against them, as he says, I don't need your bulls. I don't need your sacrifice. He said, I own all of the animals all over the earth. The cattle of a thousand hills and those thousand hills and a thousand hills after that, he said, I own all of them. I don't need your bull. He said, I don't need your sacrifice. It's not about the ritual and the formalistic external of bringing a sacrifice and offering it. Now, how does that translate for modern 21st century American churches in middle America, north central Indiana? What's that mean? God is not interested and God is not pleased with mere church attendance. God is not pleased, God is not glorified with the giving of money and tithes and offerings. God is not pleased, God is certainly not impressed by us darkening the doorstep of a local church on Sunday morning. 
God wasn't pleased with the formalistic external rituals of his people under the old covenant, nor is he pleased with the external formalistic rituals of his people under the new covenant. The Lord's Supper in and of itself is not meritorious in that if you partake of the elements, the broken body and the shed blood of Jesus Christ, that doesn't give you any favor with God. God is not happy. God is not pleased with us just checking the boxes for the sake of checking the boxes. This is very important. And I submit to you that it's a matter of life and death. Rituals are not bad in and of themselves. Remember, it is God who ordained baptism and it's God who ordained the Lord's Supper. And in the Old Covenant, it's God that ordained the sacrifice of bulls and goats and lambs and so forth. It's God that said to do all that stuff. But what God didn't say to do was to bring your offering to the house of God with a wrong heart. Thinking that just by doing all the right stuff that you're going to get God off of your back. That's what they thought and they were wrong. Rituals are not bad in and of themselves. In this case, sacrifices and offerings did two very good things. Number one, the Jews were commanded to bring sacrifices and offerings to God because they were reminded that everything they had came from God to begin with. Isn't that true for us today? Everything that I have, everything that you have, you wouldn't have any of it if God didn't give it to you. You say, well, I've worked hard. I've done, I went to school. I dotted all my T's and crossed all, you know, dotted all my uh, I's and crossed all my T's. I even dotted the lowercase J's. I'm a good schoolboy. Well, folks, do you realize that there are people that live in third world countries that work twice as hard as you and I, and they don't have anything. God has blessed you. God has blessed our nation. God has blessed our jobs. God has blessed our families. And when we come to offer the sacrifice of praise and thanksgiving to God, it's not because God needs anything from us. It's because we're acknowledging that it was God that gave it to us anyway. This is very important. This is foundational. If you mess this up, you flunk everything else. It's like algebra 101. If you can't get that pre-algebra, if you can't get that right, then you might as well hang it up. You get intro to grammar wrong, well, you probably ought not take advanced English lit. Right? Amen. Second leagues, the second good thing it reminds us of is it teaches us the only way to approach God is by having a blood offering and atonement for our sins. This Jewish nation, this Israelite people under the Old Testament, they actually begin to think that they were doing God a favor by worshiping Him. Can you imagine such, who do these people think they are? Can you imagine people so foolish like that? Well, I submit to you, we're the same way. Just a little differently. God does not need our worship. 
God's not sitting up there going, you know, he, God is not like, you know, uh, some vain lady that looks in the mirror and brushes her hair all the time. You know, you know uh, what was it? Mirror, mirror on the wall. Who's the fairest of them all? You know, now God's not like that. He's not up there lusting for us to love and worship him. God does not need us. On the contrary, we need God. And specifically, what if God is not interested in my formalistic rituals, if God is not interested with me going through the motions and coming to church and giving offerings and doing all the right stuff, checking all the boxes, and when somebody says something I don't like, I'll threaten to leave. If God's not interested in that, then what is God interested in? He tells you twice. Verse 14, he said, offer to God a sacrifice of what? Thanksgiving. And perform your vows to the Most High. In verse 23, the one who offers thanksgiving as his sacrifice glorifies me. To the one who orders his way rightly, I will show the salvation of God. What does God want? God wants your thankfulness. You say, well, I've had a rough week. I don't know what I should be thankful for. Well, God only butchered his own son so you could have salvation. God only slayed Christ on crucifixion day so that we could be brought into a right relationship with him. You say, what do I have to be thankful for? Maybe it's that God washed all your sins away. That's, I ought to say that's cause for rejoicing. But see, we lose touch, we lose sight, don't we? Well, it's another Sunday. The right thing to do is to go to church. Got to give, got to give back to God. I can guarantee you one thing. God is not up there with a roster checking off all the boxes, making sure that you followed all that you're supposed to be doing. That's not what he's like. That's what these Jewish Christians thought that God was like, and they were dead wrong about that. He was not pleased with formalistic external rituals. Here's an illustration. Husband and wife wake up on Valentine's Day. Wife walks in the living room and there are presents everywhere. Matter of fact, there's a keys to a new Lexus. I might not be partial. Had a Lexus one time. I'll tell you a story about it another time. <laughs> and I went to minister. <laughs> uh, but had a Lexus one time. And it was a wonderful car. But, you know, here's a husband that has given all these gifts to his wife. I mean, from the... From the Floor to the ceiling, gifts. I mean, we're talking, you ladies fill in the blanks. Whatever it is that you like and love and enjoy. And she's staggered and stunned by all these wonderful gifts. But later on in the day, she finds out that he's got a mistress on the side. Do the gifts mean anything? Absolutely not. She doesn't care about the gifts. She wants his heart. Right, ladies? What's it matter if you gave 100,000 gifts, but you're unfaithful with your heart? And what makes us think that God is any different than that? 
That's all God is saying. You bring your gifts to me, God said. He said, you're not thankful. You don't really love me. Well, Lord, what do we need to love you for? Well, I've only washed all your sins away with the blood of my son. I sent my son to be murdered for you. Yeah. What else could he have given? He gave everything he had. Think about the story and the narrative of Christ on the cross when they pierced him through and they hit his heart and water gushed out. Here's you have the Son of God dying with a broken heart literally for you and me. And we think that we're doing God a favor by coming to church and giving an offering and doing all this other stuff. you got to be kidding me. We're not doing God any kind of favors. God has done us a favor. <laughs> we got it messed up. Happy Valentine's Day. The Lord wants to be your Valentine. Did you know that? You say, well, I don't know. I, you know. I thought it was all about doing all the right stuff and going through the motions and checking the boxes and being very religious. And God says, oh, it's not about that at all. It's about a relationship. Me and you. And are we really thankful for him to offer a sacrifice and offering of thanksgiving? How do you even do that? Well, you have to be thankful. What should you be thankful for? In the context of Psalm 50, here are these animals that have been, these innocent, precious little animals that have been split in two and murdered. So we could be in a covenant with God. Think about this. The costliness. I can think right now, you know, uh, my little doggies that we have are very expensive. And if every time I had to offer one of them little doggies for a sin I committed, I figure it out real quick that redemption, salvation is costly, isn't it? But see, it was not purchased with silver and gold and corruptible things. It was purchased by the blood of God's own Son. That was all that could pay the price. In Psalm 49, the wealthy think they're going to buy their way out. In Psalm 50, the people of God think they're going to get God off of their back by just going through all the motions and doing all the right stuff. And God says, that's not how it works. <laughs> and guess what? For you and I, it doesn't work that way either. How much more should we be thankful? Because it's not just a couple little animals that have been slain for our sins. It's the eternal Son of God. Don't ever forget that Jesus was murdered on crucifixion day. It wasn't that just he was just crucified. He was murdered. You realize that? He was tried unjustly. I don't remember when I studied the uh, crucifixion. They broke like 120 or 100 and something of their own laws. It was a completely illegitimate, illegal trial on crucifixion day. The Jews violated their own laws and the Romans violated some of theirs. This was an illegal trial, and an innocent man was put to death for you. And it wasn't just a man, it was the God-man. 
It was God Himself. Think about it. We think it's just all about doing, you know, coming to church and doing all this mechanical stuff that we do all the time. Oh, no, it's not. Never has been. It wasn't like that for these people, and it's not like that for us either. God wants a heart of authentic, genuine thankfulness. Thankfulness for the blood and for the sacrifice that he has made. Let's pray. Our most kind and precious Heavenly Father, we thank you for the greatest love gift that the universe has ever known. The love gift of Christ, of eternal redemption and salvation in him and him alone. Oh God, we just glorify you. We're thankful, Lord, for the sins that have been washed away, for the new life that has been given, for the relationship and fellowship that has been restored. For the home in eternity, we thank you for it all. And it's all because of your love in and through your son, Jesus Christ. For it's in his name we pray. Amen.